Good morning. We've got a ton of ground to cover, so we're just going to dive right on in. This morning, we are going to cover the entire Bible. I'm glad you're excited now. <laughs> like, the Bible is the most printed, copied, read, and shared book of all time. When Gutenberg was inventing his printing press, he was printing the Bible. Like, we have a whole technological revolution in the West built around this book. When Apple was trying to release uh, their initial docket of, like, what apps are going to go out, one of them was the YouVersion Bible app. As a matter of fact, uh, if you're joining online right now on our online platform, if you tab over to Bible, that same app is actually the version that you're getting now. On top of that, we as Christians say that this thing is the baseline for everything that we believe, so much so that we stuck it in the name of our church, Eastern Hills Bible Church. And yet, many of us struggle with what's actually in it, like what's even the content of it, or even what a basic storyline that would take us through the Bible is. So, how we're going to do that today uh, is we're going to skip 99.5% of it, and we're going to summarize a lot, but we are going to make pit stops where God makes major promises, and we're going to track how those things get fulfilled. If you're in need of notes this morning, two things for you. Number one, we're recording this, so you can go back and find it online on YouTube or on the podcast later if you need another, like, listen through because I talk too fast. But also, I invite you to crack open your Bible either electronically or in paper form to this beautiful page of the table of contents. Uh, this is great notes for you. I'm going to reference a lot of names of books, but if it's something that we're actually stopping to read a passage on, I'll have it on the screen for us either way. One last thing uh, as we're jumping on in, if you are interested in like deepening the conversation about the Bible and you're in need of maybe an additional resource to read or a book to pick up that takes about the same lens that we do here, but it's just going to take the conversation further because uh, it has like 150 pages and I've got like 30 minutes. So if you want the extended conversation of it, uh, there's this book called The Epic of Eden, uh, and it's by a lady named Sandra Richter. She is a brilliant Bible scholar. There's actually some things that are in that book that we're going to reference today, but this is a phenomenal resource. So, with that in mind, let's dive on in. We're going to start with a little audience participation. Uh, complete this sentence for me. In the beginning, God... Created the heavens and the earth. That is the first sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God creates heavens and earth. Stuff up there, stuff down here. If you can see it, God made it. If you can't see it, God made that too. God made everything. And everything was given a form, a function. It was good. It was useful. The world was created in the way God intended it to be. And so Genesis 1 and 2, those first couple pages of the Bible, God creates a whole good world. It functions, everything is as it should be, and it can do what it was made to do. Unfortunately, 
the next chapter happens. And our first parents, a couple by the name of Adam and Eve, uh, disobey God as it pertains to some fruit because they end up believing that God might just be holding out on them. And so they try some other stuff. And because of that, sin and death enter the world. Uh, sin, not just like, hey, my toddler lies about brushing her teeth sometimes. That, not that, like evil itself enters the world. Death enters the world. And it gets worse. The next chapter, we start killing each other. Cain kills his brother Abel, and it gets so bad where even by the time you get to Genesis 6, it says every single will, intuition, like thought of humanity is bent on evil. So much so that God has to hit a massive reset button with a flood that only eight people survive. You'd think we'd have gotten the point. But we succeeded in repopulating the earth, but then once again it was right back to evil more and more and more. So much so that eventually people do come together. Uh, but they try to build a tower in a city, which is actually a whole like temple complex thing. We can talk about that another time. But they build it trying to bend God to their will. And God will have no part of that. And he has to scatter them, divide their language, and the state of humanity is broken. And so whereas in Genesis 1 and 2, you have something whole, functioning, and beautiful, by the end of Genesis 11... You have that. We have broken relationships with one another. We can't relate to God very well. We can't even relate to the created world around us well. We are lost. Thank God the story doesn't stop there. God does something nuts. He comes to humanity uh, in this book of Genesis. Uh, and he, he comes to humanity and is like, hey, guess what? Your plan A as to how we're going to put this back together. Which is crazy if you think about it, because it was our fault that that happened. Like, if there was a party not worth trusting in this mess, it's people. But God in Genesis 12 comes to a guy by the name of Abram, uh, who he will cha later change his name to Abraham, and he says this. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. By the way, do you notice he didn't say where? Like, I love that. God's like, start walking. I'll let you know when you get there. But go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All people blessed through what God is going to do through Abraham. And God makes him plan A with no plan B. But in this, God makes two specific promises 
uh, to Abraham, and it is land and family. First, like, go from your land, I'll show you a new place where you're going to live. You're going to have a home. You're going to have a place to call your own. It's, you're going to have something. And family. Uh, at this point, Abraham was childless, but he, God says that whole family, like, it's going to grow into a nation, and that's going to be the vehicle that he blesses the world through. Abraham, at the ripe old age of a hundred, has his first kid. Uh, Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob gets in a wrestling match with God and loses, gets renamed to Israel, which, by the way, that word means people who struggle with God. And sure enough, they start existing in their land. But then going to your table of contents, uh, that next book, Exodus, essentially, uh, there was a famine in the land which drove the people to go to Egypt at the end of the book of Genesis. In Exodus, they do indeed grow into a nation. But the problem is that uh, the Pharaoh on the throne at the time then views them as a threat because they're more numerous than the Egyptians. And so he enslaves them. But the plan can't do what the plan was supposed to do if it's enslaved. And so God, with a guy by the name of Moses, goes to Egypt, steps into the ring with Pharaoh and all the gods of Egypt, and ten plagues later, they had enough. And God leads his people out to freedom through dry ground in the middle of a lake. After that, uh, God decides he needs to have the DTR conversation with the people. Uh, you know, define the relationship conversation, right? Like, if you've ever been on a couple of dates, same person, you know, things are going well, you're at another dinner, it's good, and she looks up from the food and just hits you with the, so where is this going? <laughs> that stomach-dropping question? <laughs> yeah, that's the conversation God has with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. And he says this in Exodus chapter 19, uh, through Moses, he says this, uh, then Moses went up to God, uh, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then, out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In defining the relationship, God says that Israel is going to be a kingdom of priests. Now, we don't really have priests today, uh, and we, we have like Catholic priests, but also uh, if you, as you date the Exodus, it's either 1440 BC or 1225, take your pick. Short version, long time ago. And the world worked differently back then. And their world was crazy polytheistic, there were all kinds of gods, all kinds of priests, everything going on. But every priest had two jobs. Job one, represent God to the people. Be as much like the God that you served as possible. Whatever they say, you say. How they sound, you sound. What they do, you do. And you show the world by your behavior what that God is like. So if you were a priest of a God of war, you were not very popular to go visit because you might kill somebody. Uh, gods of romantic love, on the other hand, were very popular to go visit. 
But our God was different. And he says to Israel, you are all to be a kingdom of priests, every last one of you. But that's job one, represent God to the people. The other job is represent people to God. Bring people in and say, do you know him? Have you encountered this God? Like, is there some worship that needs to happen? We will help you figure that out. Is there a sacrifice or something that we need to bring? Because that was the world rules back then, right? Whatever we got to do, we will help you do. Do you have something like on your mind? Do you need to put a prayer up to this God? We will help. Whatever you need to encounter this God, we will do. Two jobs. Represent God to the world and the world to God. And that lasts a month. Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days. The people are like, oh, he's probably dead. We should move on. Yeah, yeah, he's dead. Uh, and then they get a little golden calf situation. They worship that instead of God, which is a horrendous idea. Uh, but then how God has to deal with that would be kind of funny, except for it's very, very violent. But that's how the people go from being a kingdom of priests to a kingdom with priests. That golden calf incident in Exodus 32 is how the tribe of Levi gets pulled out as, okay, you guys are the only priests. They still have priests. It's not God's ideal for the people, but they still have them. Jumping to your table of contents, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is the rest of that DTR conversation God has with the people. Joshua, God is faithful to his word. The people retake the land that they were supposed to be living in. They do struggle to conquer the whole thing, and they have some issues, uh, which shows up in the next book, Judges, which is one of the darkest moments in the entire Bible. It is full of constant warfare and fighting. There's a civil war and a bunch of other stuff that's not great to say in polite company. Ruth, the next book, stands out as a story of hope in the middle of that. And then the books of Samuel kick off. The people were kind of like a tribal confederation leading up to that point, and then they become united under one king as a nation under a guy named Saul. He's not very good, so they replace him with a guy named David, like David and Goliath, David, David who killed like lions and bears. Oh my, David, same guy. He becomes king of a united Israel. And then through the prophet Nathan, God makes some more promises. He says this, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great. Sound familiar? Sound like the Genesis thing we just read? It's on purpose. Like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. 
I don't know if you remember this, but forever's a long time. But God comes to David and makes two promises, kingdom and king. One, that there will be some kind of kingdom that they have that won't get moved and will last forever. And then somebody related to this David guy will be on the throne forever. Unfortunately, things go downhill from there. Uh, the second half of David's life is rife with some major mistakes. And then his son Solomon takes the throne, which Solomon did two good things. Uh, at one point, God comes to him and is like, ask me for anything, I'll give it to you. And he asks for wisdom. Good. Uh, he also builds the temple of God in Jerusalem. Good. Just about everything else is a colossal failure. He is so bad that after him, there's a civil war and the nation splits in half. Ten tribes go north, they call themselves Israel. One stays south, calls itself Judah, and they never reunite. After hundreds of years of disobeying God in their own unique way, and God sending prophet after prophet after prophet, like, please stop it! <laughs> the people go into exile, and their home is torched, and they're taken captive by foreign armies. And very, very few make it back from that. And that is where your Old Testament ends. There's a lot of problems with that. Like, the people knew it was their own fault. Right? They knew they disobeyed, and so the consequences of that were just. Like, they were on board with that. But the question sitting on their minds is like, okay, but what's God going to do with us now? Like, if you look at this, like, God's made a lot of promises. You know what exile looks like. Uh, you don't have land. Uh, you're taken from your home, and if you return to it, someone else owns it. Uh, family, most of them are dead. Priests, already talked about, that didn't go super well. Uh, kingdom, burned to the ground. And the Davidic kings are not on the throne. That named list of guys at the end of your Old Testament, so Isaiah all the way through Malachi, are prophets that God sent to the people to call them back to faithfulness. Some are during that monarchy period, some are during the exile, and a couple of them are after. But by the way, essentially, the way that this biblical prophecy works is they take the book of Deuteronomy and say, hey, God already spoke. Here's where you do and do not meet that standard. Usually not come back to the way of God. That is the primary function of Old Testament prophecy. But it's in this period of exile where the written word takes on incredible importance for the people. They're collecting all these books that you and I would call the Old Testament. Uh, they'd already been written well before that point. But they're collecting them, treasuring them, studying them, because it's one of the only connections to God that they have left. It's also in that time that prayer also becomes of paramount importance, again, because it's one of the only things they have left. But then some of these books that they're collecting, uh, so back to your table of contents, uh, it says Ezra and Nehemiah, that's what happens when the people come back from exile. Esther happens in exile, but then you have these books of wisdom literature that they collect at this point. You have Job, which is 
an incredible book, but also the question behind Job is, what rules does God run the world by? Like, I don't get it sometimes. Like, sometimes really terrible things happen to people for what seems like no good reason. And then you have Psalms, which is like the OG hymnal of the people of God. Like, there's songs that the people would sing together because corporate worship was their other way of connecting with God. Hmm. Uh, a world in which your primary connection to God is through singing worship songs together, prayer, and studying the written word. Sound familiar? And then comes Proverbs, which is, hey, if you obey God, it will generally go well. That's meant to be read alongside Ecclesiastes, which is, hey, there's a lot of exceptions to that. Like, sometimes we obey God, it didn't turn out. And then Song of Songs, definitely about sex. Regardless of whatever later interpretations came in about that book, it is 100% about sex. It is a celebration of how God intended it to be, and he's got a very specific place for that. But Song of Songs, like, if we struggle with metaphor, like, we go to Song of Songs and we're like, oh, these people are really into gardening. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> But that's your Old Testament. And the people with their books of literature, with their Bible, with their prayer and being together, they're waiting to see what God's going to do about that. Is God done with his people? Y'all, it is 400 years between the Old and New Testaments. That one page in your Bible is 400 years of time where the people are desperately praying to God to do something about their situation. Just imagine if God took 40 years to answer prayers we tossed up today. First of all, 40 years from now, will it still have mattered that we prayed, whatever that was? But also, Imagine if the only person that gets the benefit of your prayers today is your grandkids eventually. Would we still pray? Would we still seek the face of God and say, okay, what are you up to? What are you going to do about your word? But also, what are you going to do with us? And it's into that desperation that Jesus steps on the scene. And notice what his first speech is. Uh, look at this in the Gospel of Mark. This is Jesus' opening speech. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. He said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Kingdom. Like, the kingdom of God is wherever, like, God's will and way is done. That is the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, it's breaking in with his ministry. And Jesus keeps on going. He teaches, he preaches, he heals, he does miracles, he leads people, calls them to himself, and starts this movement of the kingdom of God. Unfortunately, uh, there were some very powerful people of the day that were not on board with how Jesus was going about things. 
and they thought it was worth killing him over. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those first four books of our New Testament, they tell us about the ministry, life, and death of Jesus. One of my favorite biblical fun facts happens at the end of the Gospel of Mark. The words that are used in the crucifixion scene of Jesus, the order of events, the style of things that are done, the general tone of what is going on according to Mark is identical to a Roman coronation ceremony. Whereas there would have been an emperor, there's Jesus on a cross, but he's still got a crown. Somehow, by going to the cross, Jesus became king. See, because those twin problems that came into the world to start way back in Genesis of sin and death that we needed a solution to, Sin on the cross took its best shot at Jesus. When it was done, death took its best shot at Jesus. And three days later, he came out of a grave declaring victory. From there, the story keeps going. Jesus commissions his followers to actually go spread the news of this kingdom of God. That's what Acts is, like what Jesus' initial followers did after the resurrection. And the rest of the New Testament, except for that one book at the end, is all letters from early church pastors to their congregations, helping them figure out, okay, what is this Jesus guy? Like, what's the message? What's the point? But also, how do we, like, live with that? But look at how they talk about him. This is the beginning of the book of Romans. Uh, one of these early church pastors, a guy by the name of Paul, says this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed son of God in power, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So whereas... In the Older Testament, you have, it's this family that grew into a nation of the Jewish people, people of Israel, that others could join. Through the work of Jesus, every person, regardless of ethnicity, becomes a part of the family of God. Anybody who calls himself a Christian is then a part of that family. This phrase, by the way, son of God in power, royal title. And then it keeps going. Another one of these early church pastors, a guy by the name of Peter, says this about a, a mixed bag of Jews and Gentiles that he's writing to. He says this, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. As in, everybody who calls himself a Christian has one job, be priest of Jesus. 
represent Jesus to the world and the world to Jesus. However Jesus would act, we act. If he had our shoes and lived our lives, whatever he would do, we do. That WWJD bracelet from the 90s wasn't just corny marketing. Like, that's the actual question of someone following Jesus. Like, whatever he would do, we do. And we show the world by our behavior what Jesus is like. We also represent the world to Jesus. We bring people in and say, do you know him? You should. Like, what do you need? Do you need to, like, be able to worship this God? We'll help you out. Like, is there some kind of prayer you need to toss up to the Lord? We will help. Like, whatever you need, we will do so that you can come to Jesus. That's the job. You know, Jesus said one really, really helpful thing. Well, a lot of very helpful things, but one floats to the top uh, as he's trying to sum up what we're supposed to do following him. He said, you know, if I was going to sum it up, you know, be love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And so let's start with uh, love the Lord your God uh, with all your mind. We do not read the Bible to be smarter. We study this thing for all it is worth in context, in community, as a whole. We tear it apart for all it is worth because that is one key way of getting to know this God that we follow. And we know that over time, it will shape us into being people more and more like Jesus. When we love the Lord our God with all our mind and really pour in, pieces start to come back together. Love the Lord God with all your heart, like that seat of decision-making power that is deep in your gut. When you make decisions based on, okay, what honors Jesus best? That puts a piece back together. Love the Lord God with all your strength. What are you good at? Like, what talent do you have? What skills do you have? Use it in a way that helps others, that, like, shows who God made you to be. Like, be really, really good at what you do, because that's loving God with all your strength. But then, love your neighbor as yourself. First of all, if you don't love yourself, you will be trash at loving your neighbor. So let's start with us. Uh, take a vacation on purpose and don't work. It's loving yourself well. How about having a regular rhythm of rest? Not legalistically, but when we Sabbath well and actually take dedicated time to recharge and enjoy the life that God gave us, that's loving ourselves well, and a peace goes back together. And love your neighbor. When we look out for other people, pieces go back together. When we care for the widow, the orphan, the refugee, the other, well, pieces go back together. When we care for the poor, well, pieces go back together. When we care for the rich, well, pieces go back together. When we look out for other people's needs better than our own, pieces go back together. When we look at every single person we meet as someone who Jesus died for, that is loving our neighbor well. And that's the job. That's how we represent, as Christians, Jesus to the world.
and when we bring others to him so that they can live this same life, we put these pieces back together one at a time. Looking for a way to sum up all of this, the Apostle Paul strikes again, and he says this in 2 Corinthians, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Simply put, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. But look at these big ones again for land. Like God's been saying from the beginning, the whole earth is his anyway. So he's like, yeah, I'll just take the whole thing. Boom, got it. Family, all of us who are Christians are that giant extended family that is meant to bless the world. Priests, we just talked about it. That's all of us. Kingdom, we have the kingdom of God, and boy, do we have a king. His name is Jesus. And then there's that little book at the end of the Bible called Revelation, which, by the way, uh, the genre of that book is called apocalyptic literature, which we have not written in for thousands of years. Uh, it's a style of writing by an oppressed people group that write things in code so that the people that might intercept that don't kill them. And the shared code is just the Old Testament. So if you want to read Revelation well, Go read the rest of your Old Testament and then come back to it. It will help. You can't escape like two sentences of Revelation without a quote of the Old Testament. While there is a lot of confusing material in there, that picture at the end is rather clear. At the end of all things, heaven comes down to earth. God's space and our space are once again reunited in the restoration of all things. The sequence of events is Jesus comes back, bodily resurrection of everybody, like you'll have skin, right? Bodily, physical resurrection of everybody, then to judgment before the throne of Jesus. And it's just one simple question. Do you know him? Yes or no? If yes, eternity with him in a restored heaven and earth. If no, you don't want to go there. But then, in the restoration of all things, heaven and earth meet. God's space and our space are one. Evil, death, divorce, pain, suffering, not being able to fall asleep because your anxiety is still running, none of those things will exist. And everything will once again be fully made to how God intended it to be, with every piece back together. And I know that that can sound like a fairy tale. But let me encourage you this way. God has never once broken a promise to his people. He's not going to start with us. And because we can trust that each and every one of these big promises has been yes and amen in Christ, that one that's still outstanding, we can trust him for too. So in the meantime, 
Our role is to be priests of Jesus, represent Jesus to the world, the world to Jesus, include people, help put pieces back together, and trust him with our future. And that is the story of the Bible. Speaking of Jesus, let's talk to him. Pray with me. God, thank you for today. Thank you for another day just to wake up, experience sunshine, and be with our church family. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you that you came to earth to show us how to live. You went to a cross on our behalf, became king, and resurrected. Thank you that every promise you have made, you keep. Thank you that we can trust you with our future. Thank you that we can trust you in the present and we know what the past has looked like. It is worth trusting you again. God, for all things and all places and all time and everything on our minds, we put it in your faithful hands. We love you. We thank you for what you have done. And we can't wait to see what's next. All this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.